there's historical romance that just have yeah only the vaguest relationship to the actual history of Britain and there's historical romance that gets really down and dirty into it and where the author has really delved into it and although I you know I prefer the second kind but I don't think the first kind should be dismissed because it's it, it is doing something else I don't think every historical romance needs to go there was only 28 dukes and most of them had syphilis and no teeth and everyone's got lice I don't want to read books where everyone's got likes, you know. <laughs> if I want likes, I'll have young children again. I, I would rather read a book where they just sort of throw their hands up and just go, OK, we're, we're, we're hairing the hell out of this, you know. Because actually, Georgia Hare, she, although she did loads of research and everything, when she actually did the bits that are really historically rounded, which is to say an infamous army and the other readers, they're awful, they're so boring, they're dreadful. Nobody reads them, nobody wants to read them. The sort of glittery, bally, wonderful, wonderful romancy ones... We love them, and it is it is good that people do that, and I think there is space for both. But this is actually something I'm struggling with at the moment because, like a fool, I tried. To, I'm, I've been trying to write a Duke book. I mean, fundamentally, my problem is, and this really does cut quite deep into the fact that I write historical romance, is that I sort of feel like the entire aristocracy should have been executed. That was the voice of K.J. Charles, an author who helped establish a place for queer historical romance in the modern genre, writing, as she describes her work, hair, but gayer. In this Trailblazer episode, we talk about K.J.'s writing, about the way she views the historical romance genre, about building communities of queer people on page, and about her work as a romance editor back in the day for Mills and Boone. You're listening to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor, although I am not want to call myself that today because KJ Charles was a real romance editor and I'm just like gonna like be like, okay, well, I... You know, listen, you just have uh, 19 <laughs> more years to go. <laughs> Hire me, Mills and Boone, so I can feel real. <laughs> oh my God, imagine what a good job. Ugh, what a fun job. Um, just editing presents all the time. The dream. The, the the literal dream, yes. Anyway, uh, but before we get there, we have something else. We have a little housekeeping for everyone. In case you didn't download our quick six-minute episode last week, Faded Mates Live is happening in person in Brooklyn, New York, the best bar- borough of New York City. Obviously. March 24th at 7 p.m. We suggest you call up all your romance-loving friends and make a weekend of it. The 24th is a Friday. March is a great time to come to New York City because it's, you know, maybe a little gray, but not super cold. And it'll be very fun. You can go to a museum. You can go to a show. You can come see us. The ticket include a gift certificate to the Romance Book Table, uh, sponsored by Word Bookstores in Brooklyn. Uh, there will be a bar. There will be lots of other Fate of Mates listeners to make friends with. Uh, and Jen and me, and a really delightful spate of special guests, many of whom you all know already. It's been really exciting to see people on Instagram and Twitter talking about, like, getting their friends together and buying tickets and arranging to come into the city for the weekends. Put on a mask, get on an airplane or a train, and come see us. Fadedmates.net slash live. And now that that's off the table, uh, without further ado, here is our conversation with KJ Charles. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited. I don't think we've ever met. So not in person. Um, I think we've been we've been on 
panels, but uh, this is a proper face-to-face, yeah, so that's nice. it's great. So it's nice to meet you. It's nice to see your face. Yes, you too. So everybody, as we've mentioned, I'm really excited about our conversation today because I have also hosted a few panels with KJ, and I love listening to talk, you talk about romance. And I'm really excited because you are also an editor, which is, you know, a personal interest to me. Not that it's about me, everybody. So we are really excited to have you today on as a trailblazer. And really, one of our first questions, just because we love hearing about it, is what was your journey to romance? Well, my mother had a complete set of Georgette hairs, which is basically, you know, you do. That'll do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm an immensely fast reader and a voracious one. I always have been. So, you know, one of those kids who just sat in the library all summer and, you know, I read extremely quickly. So I was plowing through all of my parents' books. They had to remove all the inappropriate ones from the shelves kind of thing. And so, yes, I'd read through the entirety of Georgette Hare and, you know, obviously formative. Uh, I was thinking about it. (laughs) Basically, Cotillion and these old chains pretty much sum up the two strands of my writing. You know, Cotillion, you've got Freddie, who is this wonderfully, um, he's not, you know, not too bright, wonderful, generous heart, immensely kind, and also the superpower of really, really good manners to be deployed, like, accurately. And then you've got Avon in these old chains, who's basically just a complete amoral son of a so-and-so. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and they, they, those two basically sum up most of my writing. Um, although it is, I was also reflecting that Georgette Hare, for her era, and with the proviso of the kind of person she was and the many prejudices she had, but there's an awful lot of queerness in Georgette Hare's historical romances, you know, in The Reluctant Widow, the actual hero who isn't the guy who marries the heroine is, you know, very, very heavily queer-coded. In The Corinthian, you've got the heroine who is masquerading as a boy and the fact that the bad guy effectively hints that he's going to blackmail the hero for having taken off the boy in a private, etc., etc. So there's very much very strong awareness of non-conventional sexuality. And then the masquerade is just the most ridiculous cross-dressing, gender-bending, you know, um, so there, there's a lot of that in here. So, um, yeah, it's uh, formative, definitely. Um, and then I kind of didn't follow up my intro. I, I was more of a fantasy reader, to be honest. But um, when I was, gosh, about 28 or so, um, and an editor, I got a job at Nelson Boone, which, to be honest, I took because I was working at an absolutely disastrous company for a lunatic and I needed to get out of there. And Nelson Boone happened to be advertising. <laughs> take the rope that comes. It was very much take the rope that comes. You know, I, I wanted a job that would mean not having to go into that that snake pit and uh, they wanted an editor. Um, and I stayed there for years and, I, you know, everything I learned about editing really came from that. When you started at Mills and Boone, aside from hair, did you have any frame of reference for what was going on in, in romance? Not, or- not really, no. I haven't been reading any romance at all. I'd, um, well, the thing is, because of being an editor, I actually mostly concentrated on reading what I was working on. So when I worked at a travel guide company, I would be reading nonfiction or you know fiction, but set in the country for the travel guide I was working on. And then I moved to a house that was doing um politics and history which i read an awful lot of that so i wasn't actually reading romance at that time so milton Boone came as a complete change of track but you know it was just 
so, so much more fun. <laughs> so much more fun. What did you begin with at Mills and Boone? They plunge you right into it. So um, basically, I was on the medical team, the medical romance team. And we haven't talked a ton about medical romances on the podcast. So, Oh, see, I, I, I love that. It's a very English world, the medical romance. A lot of our... Um, Top authors were Australians. They seem Australian to me more yeah, than... Yeah, well, uh, no, it pretty much divided English-Australia. I can't offhand think of American, in fact. I, I did not grow up with medical romances, and I mean, I read all of them. They, they they were kind of, they were not, they were not the big one, but it was a, it was a good team. I, I like working on it. Listen, Sarah, we grew up with George Clooney on ER, though. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not to say that I don't love a doctor romance, and that's a separate episode. <laughs> but we we, ha- we had some fabulous. So we had Alison Roberts, who was actually a paramedic, wrote such exciting story, like really exciting. She did um, one which just said there was a big earthquake, and then there was four stories set around it. It was a wonderful sort of linked series, all oh, starting cool. from the earthquake. Sure. Terrific. So good to work on. And she did another trilogy that basically tracked over the progress of one person's pregnancy, for which I had to do the worst Excel spreadsheet in the world. <laughs> <You know? laughs> We <laughs> had to make sure these three books, every single incident, all tracked to this one pregnancy. I'm like, shoot me. <laughs> but it had Marion Lennox as well, um, who is a wonderful one. She divided between what we called, uh, we called it tender romance then, which I think is just, what do you call it? Harlequin like heartwarming? Romance? Yeah. It was just Harlequin like, Romance, just Harlequin basically, romance. as opposed to Harlequin Presents. Uh-huh. They've probably changed the name about 15 times since then. But um, Marion Lennox was, I mean, she was like, yeah one of my favourite authors to work with, but she wrote the, um, and this was kind of quite formative for me because it was a book of hers I actually looked it up yesterday. It's called Bushfire Bride. Um, and it's one of those, you know, the heroine's got a husband who is in a coma and has been in a coma for eight years. And there's a sequence where she basically says goodbye to him. And yeah, I'm, I'm literally editing this I'm manuscript. This already. is back in the day. Well, this is back in the day when you edited by hand. You know, like, you literally had a printout and I, I, you, you made the edits by hand to be input by the copy editor because that's how old I am. And um, me too. You know, I was literally crying so hard while I was reading this that the copy editor was like, "You're going to have to redo this page." You're tear stained. Literally tear stained. I mean, God, she absolutely rumped my heart. I can't. In fact. I didn't have to look it up too much. I was thinking, what was that book called? A Bushfire Bride came into my head, and that was 20 20 years ago, easy 20 years ago. Amazing. (laughs) So, yeah, that was it. But it was formative because I delved a lot. You know, we we did a lot of books. Yeah, the turnover there was absolutely crazy. And I worked, although I was mainly on the medical team, I worked, you know, everyone worked across all four. So, the historical, um, Harlequin Presents. Medical and tender, that's right. Um, so you, you worked across them and you got given, and if an editor or author got absolutely sick of one another, you might get them switched in. Plus, I was very fast, so people tended to give me an extra manuscript when there was a panic on, which there almost always was, because, you know, <laughs> sure. well, you couldn't, you couldn't have a book come in late because of the nature of the publishing. So, and then if, if everything did fall apart, you had to delve into the slush pile and actually pull out a finished manuscript and find out a way to make it publishable within the next week. Amazing. Um, you learn to edit. I tell you what, you learn to edit like that. It's the most fantastic grounding and structural editing because you have to be able to pretty much look at a slush pile manuscript and say, okay, you know, it's got totally good bones. The writing's a bit shonky, but if the author will agree to basically let me do a really massive edit on it, this will work. Or alternatively, you know, this isn't working at all, but 
here is a thing that I can tell the author to do, and if if they do it, it will yeah that will work. But you've got to be able to pretty much X-ray the book and look at the structure and you know identify what will work and what won't. Well, especially because in category. There's no flab. I mean, there, it, no. you, you don't have any space. It's to all mess bones up. and muscle. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really something. So you could. I mean, there was there was weeks when I did six manuscripts in a week, kind of thing, which is insane. But um, you know, like I say, you couldn't. You couldn't. You if you were publishing eight presents in a month, you can't publish seven presents. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Eight presents. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. People have signed up for their box. Right. <laughs> well, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's completely non-negotiable. So um, I, I honestly think it was. I couldn't have had a better training in ed, fiction editorial. It was, uh, you know, because it was so fast and so relentless. But it and you you had to be really super practical. So at what point during that process did you think I'm going to start doing this myself is that is that how it went or so um when I was there well you see I, I didn't really I was sort of I've always had it vaguely in mind that it would be nice to write or indeed to have written a book um when I was there they very kindly let me go off for four months and work from home in Japan and you know this is as I say 20 odd years ago so that was a really you know pretty advanced thing to do my husband was doing and my then boyfriend was doing stuff in Japan and we lived there for four months um so I did use you know some of my free time to start writing then but it wasn't a romance it was you know I wrote a fantasy novel which has never been published nor should it be and then I wrote um a thriller which um was it picked up by Samhain and sold about 12 copies, probably, deservedly. Um, and then, but it didn't occur to me to write a romance at all. I mean, it just never, partly, I think, actually, trying to write a romance while you're working at Mills and Boone might actually be a really, really <laughs> bad idea. Your head might explode. Well, you know, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't recommend that, I don't think. So it was quite a long time, actually, after, after I had left. And then I got... Married about a year later, and then about a year after that, I had a baby, and um, I started writing when the baby was quite small because you know you're trying to stay sane. Um, and it was it was supposed to be a fantasy novel, but at that point, with all the years I'd worked with Mills and Boone, basically romance had like coded <laughs> my neural pathways are like <laughs> valleys. You know, my neural pathways are just carved so deeply into my brain. But it just turned into a romance. <laughs> and that was Magpie Lord, which was my first uh, published book, my first romance. And, you know, once I sort of just leaned into it, uh, it just felt like the most natural thing in the world to do it. So there we are. So it sounds like you mostly edited contemporary romance. So what what was the draw for you to historical romance or queer romance? Like, did one of those come first in your brain in terms of the kind of story you wanted to write? I'm always more interested in historical. The thriller that I wrote the, um, was an attempt at contemporary, and you know I hated everything about it because <laughs> I live under a rock and I don't like modern technology and it dates so badly, so quickly. Oh. And you know, mobile phones ruin everything because you set up this whole drama and so could literally just phone up and go, "Oh yeah, this is what's going on," and you've ruined everything. And then you've got to find a reason for them not to have a mobile. Yeah. Um, so yeah, historical, obviously where it's at. And also I like the differences. You know, I like doing the research and I like writing about different times and different people in different places. And, you know, the similarities and differences are just much more interesting to me. 
Um, so although I didn't read many, um, I didn't edit rather many historicals at Nelson Boone. Yeah, because we only did four a month, and they they had a historicals team, so I, I had like one or two authors. Um, but uh, no, I, it's it's always been what I wanted to write. And kind of the other thing is, you know, I'm very pulp focused. A lot of what I write is sort of riffing off the pulp of the. Um, Victorian and Edwardian and sort of 1920s period because I just really enjoy that um and I'm I, I enjoy like picking that up and running with this and messing about with it and often querying it because as anyone who plays with Victorian to 20th century pulp will tell you it's just absolutely ripe for that you know this, <laughs> it's just fun right. it's fun yeah. <laughs> gosh it's so fun I feel like that's the thing I really love about your books is you know, it, there was one, and I'm terrible with titles, where he was a, like a taxidermist. Is that right? Yes, an unseen attraction. Yeah. Yes. And I was seriously like, why am I really interested in this right now? Why is this such a great time? <laughs> I, I I loved doing that, but it wasn't actually what it was meant to be. I pitched it to the publisher as something completely different, but then I couldn't write the thing I picked it to the publisher at. It turned out to be a terrible idea. Um, and I'm, I can't even remember now why Taxidermist struck me as a good idea. It's one of the most fun books I've ever read. You know, I've got, I did this deep dive into Victorian taxidermy. I've got the most <laughs> extraordinary books on my bookshelf. But, you know, I, I, I had a whole sequence where he um, actually taxidermies a canary just because it was so fascinating <laughs> to me. I was about inches, literally inches, from going and finding someone who would teach me to do it myself. <laughs> well, that's the best part about that you yes. can convince yourself I always feel like writing historical also gives you, it, it's it's really best for procrastinators because then we can sort of go off and convince ourselves that learning how to taxiderm is actually work. It's totally. <laughs> you had to learn to pick a lock to write that book, I Sarah, learned to for pick sure. a lock to write a lock That's pick. So I, mean, cool. I mean, it did become very useful when I had to open my mother's like cheap safe. Okay, that was fantastic. But, and I've never felt more powerful. <laughs> This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Kylie Scott, author of End of Story, a new book out this week. We love Kylie Scott here at Faded Mates, and this one sounds like a banger. She's so great. So here's the story. Susie Bowen inherits a charming fixture-up from her aunt. And so she is, like, really excited. Like, she's going to do the whole HGTV scene and, like, revamp the whole thing. And the book starts with a knock on her door. Her contractor has arrived. And is, is he hot? He's hot. His name's <laughs> Lars. That's real hot. Yes! Unfortunately, Lars um, is her ex's best friend. Oh, And Lars. her ex is a real dirtbag. And Lars saw their whole humiliating public breakup. And Susie just is like, oh, no, God. What am I going to do? But she needs a contractor. She does. And Lawrence is available, thank goodness. So I think she's just going to have to lean into it. Even if it's petty contracting. <laughs> it's fine. Whatever. Here's the part that's great. He is tearing down some wall, and they find a divorce certificate hidden in the wall that is dated 10 years in the future and has both of their names. What? Right? Like, what's going to happen? Why? What? What? You and Lars and Susie are going to have to discover it all together <laughs> by downloading and reading this book. I mean, as though I wasn't going to download and read this book anyway. Of course. No matter what it was about, because Kylie's amazing. But this is such a cool idea. I'm going to read it immediately. Exactly. Have a great time, everybody. You can find End of Story anywhere ebooks are sold, in audio or in print. 
Thanks to Kylie for sponsoring the episode. One of the things that Jen and I have been talking about a lot recently, um, there's a woman who uh, is on TikTok and also Twitter, and her her handle is Baskin Sons. And she's been talking a lot about how, in her mind, historical is really more like speculative fiction than it is like... Like, like uh, historical like fiction. Like historical fiction. Historical no, romance is more like speculative right. fiction than historical romance is like historical fiction. And I think this is a really fascinating way of thinking about the genre. And I wonder if how that strikes you. I, I think there's, there's very definitely strands of it. I yeah. mean, you know, you've got, I mean, Bridgerton, the TV series, for example. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, why not? You know, well, okay, so there are actually... Yeah, we we could debate this one for hours, and people already have. So I'm not going to go into that. But um, but you know, on the face of it, you, you you could look at that and literally just go, okay, this is a fantasy version where you know a large number of the aristocracy, people of color, and why should why should you not do that? Why is that not a good thing to do? I I kind of I you know, then there's historical romance that just does have uh, yeah only the vaguest relationship to the actual history of Britain and there's historical romance that gets really down and dirty into it and where the author has really delved into it and although I you know I prefer the second kind but I don't think the first kind should be dismissed because it's it it is doing something else but maybe you know maybe looking at this the historical fantasy without magic would almost be sort of resolve that argument if you see what I mean Uh because it is trying to do something else um, I don't think every historical romance needs to go, there was only 28 dukes and most of them had syphilis and no teeth and everyone's got likes. <laughs> no. I don't want to read books where everyone's got likes. You know? <laughs> if I want likes, I, I'll have young children again. <laughs> I, d- yeah, I don't want to read any books where any there's any lice, actually. Because. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I would rather read a book where they just sort of throw their hands up and just go, okay, we're, we're, we're hairing the hell out of this. You know, because actually, Georgia Hare, she, although she did loads of research and everything, when she actually did the books are really historically grounded, which is to say an infamous army and the other reason they're awful. They're so boring. They're dreadful. <laughs> nobody reads them. Nobody wants to no, read them. No, it's much more fun to read her making things up. Yeah. Well, the the sort of glittery, bally, wonderful wonderful romancy ones, yeah, we love them. And it yeah. is it is good that people do that. But I, I, I and I suspect that's so I suspect that's kind of what that person might have been getting at, or at least it's, that's how I feel about it. And I think there is space for both. Very definitely. Right. This is actually something I'm struggling with at the moment because, like a fool, I tried to, I'm, I've been trying to write a Duke book. And my problem with the Duke book, um, my problem with, I mean, fundamentally, my problem is, and this really does cut quite deep into the fact that I write historical romance, is that I sort of feel like the entire aristocracy should have been executed. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, this, this, uh, usually I sort of hand wave this one and, then I started writing a Duke and I've got 60,000 words. And I'm just sitting there going, you haven't got any problems that cannot be solved by your money, which you have. <laughs> exactly. Like, money, it. power, <laughs> title. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, seriously, you don't have any problems. So it's I, I have not, in fact, squared that circle yet. And if I've wasted 60,000 words, I'm going to be banging my head against the wall. But currently I feel like I've wasted 60,000 words because I cannot for the life of me. It's poor little rich. Rich boy, right? It is, and that's not that's not something that I big. struggle with. No, <laughs> and, and that's not your brand. I he mean... didn't like his dad, KJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and 
you know, the things that could be a problem, you know, oh, anyway, I won't bore you with my struggles because I'm boring myself with my struggles, but it's a real problem for it's me. It's interesting that you bring this up because I actually think this is a discuss- This is a push-pull that's happening. This did not happen in historical romance 20 years ago. Nobody worried about Even 10 about years this. ago. Yeah. Or even 10 years ago. But now those of us, I mean, I've written a thousand dukes, right? And And you can see it in my writing that I've gone from poor little rich boy to like now like time to burn down the dukedom entirely right let's set it on fire it's really hard not to isn't it because yeah i don't do it anymore uh, uh, yeah, exactly and you you've you've moved because apart from anything else i don't know about you but how often do you just sit there and think so where does this guy's money come from oh well yeah and then and what's interesting is in the 80s or 90s you could wave it away he has plantations exactly. but he pays his workers Right? Or, you know, you don't even mention the plantation. It's just, it, he's just rich. Right. Okay? It's fine. He's rich. He's got land. We, we don't talk about the English people working for him. Still less than anyone outside, you know, make it Victorian. Exactly. And how much of his money is coming from empire, which is so colonialism, which is a theft. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, and there are only so many times that you can sort of accept, well, this one got his title, you know, when he was 35 because he did something good. You know, there's something. <laughs> yeah. And if and if they do that, you know, steal money, where's and that it's come probably from? in a war. Like, uh, there's a lot. It's hard. There, there, there is a lot. Yeah. There, no, there, there, there is a lot. Which and is it's... why there's something to this, like, it's, like you said, historical fantasy, you know, but no magic. Because it does feel like, in a lot of ways, the work that these books are doing, the social work that these books are doing is is not about, obviously, it, it it's, very difficult to to handle, like, where did the power come from? Where did the money come from? Mm. But in many cases, in your books, especially, right, the work of your books is very important currently for, for the world that we live in now, for 2023. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about how you think about the the job, the the work of the books in the in a world where right now, like, queer people and Books about queer people are under attack across the United States and around the world. So, you know, what, how do you do, how do you reconcile the work with the world, I guess is the question. Oh, lordy. <laughs> I'm asking, you know, for a friend who is me. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you mean in the sense of, yeah, the, 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 the sort of princi- the guardian principles, yeah. as it were? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like... Fundamentally, the the purpose of romance, I mean, it's twofold, isn't it? You want to give hope and you want to give connection. So, um, you know, the hope is a romance gives us like a portrayal of a better world where people are loyal and people are loving and someone stands up for you and you've got a family and, you know, it, it yeah. it's just, and, and you know, it's it's not just hope, it's fulfilled hope because you pick up a book thinking, I hope this ends well, and it does because it's a romance novel um and and then i think you've got connection in the sense of you know you're writing a book that depicts people connecting in a real way but also you know there's a romance community and there's a fact that you know when people if people see a romance novel with someone who looks like them or behaves like you know a, a queer person a black person whoever on the cover uh, and that romance novel is being sell- sold and it's on the shelves of the bookshop, that's really, really important. And it's all the more important if they're taking the books out of the schools and the libraries, which I have to say is a barbarism. So terrifying that I, you know, 
I don't know what your policy on swearing is, but no, know, please go for it. Word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when it comes down to it, I want my books to be ones that people, you know, uh, not that there are places of safety where things work out, even if things don't look like they're going to work out, which I think is important because, you know, there is absolutely a place of very, very low angst for romance where everything is totally okay. And I don't write that. Um, but, and, you know, I'm really glad it exists because people sometimes need to go there. But I think people also sometimes need to have, you know, the drama and the angst or whatever, but still with the guarantee of everything being okay and still with it just, you know, we use fiction to tell ourselves tell ourselves that the world could be a better place, fundamentally. Mm-hmm. That is what fiction is for. It's to, you know, try things out and explore them and, you know, say, look, look, here is this thing. This is this is the way the world could be. And, you know, I write the bits of how the world should have been and, you know, how I would like it to be. Yeah. I, th- I think I keep thinking about what we were talking about, about like the Duke's the duke situation and and i think part of the reason class is so hard to deal with in romance is like we all know that many people have found happiness even in the throes of financial instability like of course Mm. right yeah but at the same time we all also know that like with like financial instability does make so many problems go away yeah and I think, like, romance really hasn't quite figured out how to, like, grapple with some of that. I mean, and I, I I know that's, like, I'm sorry I'm, like, bringing that back, but I was thinking as you were talking, too, about, like, how the world should be, right? Like, and I think so much of what romance is trying to do when it's, like, found family and this is the way the world should be is we shouldn't have people that are, like, well, I can't really, like, have the life I want to live right now because I have to work 800 hours a week or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think... Or I can't have the life I want to live because I live in Florida and, like, these books are being banned. And what's that like for my family or my 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 children? And I think so much of what romance is about is saying we don't have to live like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's and, – and, and I think addressing problems, you know, through a fictional lens is a great way of helping people deal with them. Um, I mean, I, I remember – one absolutely lovely bit of uh, mail I got that was from a reader who was going through something like quite rubbish. I think it might have been chemo. But she basically said that um, she, this is going to sound kind of, I'm actually, it's going to ring a bell because you're all going to have done it. But she basically was reading this book of mine where the hero is kidnapped and he's basically trapped in this room and he's just doggedly doing sit-ups with a chain on his leg because he's not going to sit there and do nothing. So he does like a thousand sit-ups. And she pretty much said, you know, I, I was just, you know, I was going through it thinking, well, I'm like Darling, yeah, I'm like Will Darling doing his sit-ups. And, you know, if he can do a thousand sit-ups, then I can do this thing kind of thing. And actually that's oh, nice. It is. Well, it, but it's, you know, it's so it's not just about romance providing an escape, although it does provide an escape. I think, you know, it's, we can we can all use this. We can all think of characters and almost model yes. ourselves. Yeah, yeah. This is why people who, sex positivity is important um, or, you know, depicting sexual relationships at work. I'm not going to necessarily say healthy because, you know, another thing romance stars, which is a big matter of discussion, but, you know, you can show people starting from a quite an unhealthy place. But, you know, you, you can actually show them starting from an unhealthy place and improving. You can show, you can you can model all sorts of behaviour and people can sort of try them out and apply those ideas to their own situation 
while they're also reading a highly entertaining book that doesn't feel didactic. Right. Well, and I think for me, it's always been like love is worth it, even when you've been hurt. Right? Like, we've all been hurt. I mean, I I know it's, like, very old school, but those, like, old 90s romance heroes who are like, I've been hurt once, I can never love again, like, <laughs> that means something to me because we all have, right? I mean, like, there, I don't think there's anything more brave than, like, putting your heart on the line again. And I think romance, every single time, is really saying, like, you know, you might not be called to some big act of bravery in your life, regular people of the world, but yeah. you will be called upon... To make these, like, small commitments to the people in your lives and say, like, like my community or the people. I mean, that, I don't know. I know that's really cheesy, maybe. But, like, that really means something to me. But, and I mean, it, it, it does. This is a thing that I, you know, I, I, I get quite a few letters. And, you know, people discover the most, you know, if they, if they really see themselves in a character, if they see a disparate character and they've not read one before and it means something to them to be seen, or, you know, people who read a absolute shed load of queer romance and then they kind of go, actually, you know, it, it turned out I might not be success after all, which happens. So, yeah, it happens, to, you know, and that's some people who've never ha- had the, been aware that there was an option, you know, discover that. Um so they, yeah, there's, there's I, I think that's that is the power of romance. It's the power of showing how things could be, and they work out. They yeah. guaranteed work out. You know, they don't do a little life on you. <laughs> and I think that to that point, we've really been very lucky as romance readers and people in the community for the last however long decade, because it feels like there was so much less of that representation before. And, um, and you know, we ha- we've had, obviously, we've tried really hard for these particular episodes to bring people in who have been working on representation of all forms from, you know, the beginning of the, you know, the beginnings of the modern genre. But, um, you know, I think about, it's it's so rare, it was so rare to see Characters who were anything other than cis, het, white, thin, yeah, you know, rich, rich people, etc. <laughs> before, you know, but now it feels like part of the reason why we asked you to join us is because it does feel like when you came onto the scene, there was a shift. Not that you brought the shift. No, but, it's riding away. But you but, yeah. were a part of something that was happening on, it was firing on all cylinders, right? There's Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. That's yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk, was there an awareness of that for you as somebody who had come up through, I mean, one of the most classic romance avenues was the sort of Harlequin, Mills and Boone pathway, right? So what you were looking, what were you, what you were working on when you were there was the almost like the purest of romance. Very much the old school. Yeah. And so was there, did you have an awareness at the time that you started writing or you started being published that something was shifting? It's actually quite interesting because um, I sold the Magpie Lord to Sam Hain. Gosh, and Sam Hain was doing so much of that too. They, they, were, they, they were doing a shed load, but even they, um, they basically went, look, this is Victorian queer, um, fantasy um victorian queer fantasy romance and they pretty much said expected to sell 12 copies because you know it's not even regency people don't like historical that much it's got fantasy which can put a bunch of people off you know um 
Sure. They, they were doing quite a lot, a lot of queer romance, but you were really very much looking at contemporaries, mostly with two two bare torsos on the cover, kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and I did actually go out looking. The only other one I could find was uh, Widdershins by Jordan L. Hawke, who was also nineteenth century. Sure. Where uh, you know, say same era fantasy. I was like, no, no, that's exactly the right book. Just here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how dare you say there isn't one of them? Of course there is. <laughs> There's one of them. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's always the way, isn't it? There can be yeah. Only one. But yeah, but Jordan self-published. Um, so you know, they. I, I. My expectations were extraordinarily low. Basically, they. They sort of. They didn't expect it to sell a lot, but they still wanted to do it. And you know, although they didn't end well, I really respect what they were doing. Um, and then it did sell well. I mean, you know, it sold extremely well. Yeah. Do you know why? Do you know how? I mean, obviously, it's fantastic, and that's why. But was there something that happened? Was there somebody who... There was a Goodreads reader who I've always, I don't know if I'm right, but I've always attributed it to this one personal good... You know how some people at Goodreads have, some of them just yes. seem to have 40 zillion connections? Mm-hmm. Well, one of them got an ARC and just left this absolutely phenomenal review, and then it just went boom. Yeah. Um, because it also feels like fantasy. You scooped up a world of readers who were not being served by romance at all. Yeah, and there was, um, yeah, people People love, I mean, yeah, look at how much historical fantasy and indeed queer historical fantasy there is now. It's just, it's just this wonderful, wonderful cornucopia because it, 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 I think everyone's always loved it. I don't know why people, except, you know, one of the most depressing things to me about working with publishers, and I've really experienced this as an editor, um, is that... They just sit there going, that that won't sell. Oh, no, that won't sell. Well, how do you know it won't sell? We haven't published one. Well, somebody else did one and it didn't sell. We've You're, tried okay, nothing, we, KJ. <laughs> we've tried nothing or we're out of ideas. <laughs> it's actually, it, it, it is literally, it is along the lines of, I've heard people say variants on, if it sold, we'd have already published something like Sir. it. Nobody has new ideas. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and, yeah, we'd, we'd already know if this kind of thing would sell. There isn't loads of this on the market already, therefore it doesn't sell. And you go, well, why don't we start it? Oh, it's it is genuinely infuriating. And and then you 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 get through that, and then you go through the, the there can be only one phase, mm-hmm. um, which we have lived through, in which uh, they will absolutely publish a black author, but one black author. Right. You know, we can have one Indian or, you know, we can have one queer person on our books, but goodness me, not more, because, yeah, one is plenty. And then, oh, my God, it doesn't sell because there's just one book. Right. Beverly Jenkins forever. Yeah. Well, but I mean, yeah, Beverly Jenkins is like this amazing, um, you know, somebody actually, I, I really hope someone's done a PhD because... Yeah, she she sold so much, and then you look at, and then you look back and you think, why weren't they scooping up other black historical exactly. romance authors right. when she was selling and selling and selling? Um, and why was nobody going? This is a trend. This is a trend that we can cash in on. And they did. They 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 hide under it. They say there can be only one. Oh, well, better be Jenkins, right? You know, right? Um, and then of course it tips, and then suddenly they go, oh my god, gold rush, and then. You know, but then they're scooping right. up everyone uh-huh. they possibly can because finally they have worked out they can make some money on it, which obviously, as we know, is a publisher's sole reason for being. <laughs> um, and it's slightly, it, it, it's maddening to observe. So my experience, with especially you know, queer fantasy historical romance, was pretty much that I, all my guests were out there 
is there's a whole bunch of people writing it and a whole bunch of publishers just going, no, that's not going to sell, that's not sell. Sampain told me it wasn't going to sell even while they published it as presumably an act of charity or something. <laughs> and then, oh my God, it's up right. Now we'll think we're up all the manuscripts that I, I will absolutely bet you people have been sending in for years and years. Sure. Right. And what's fascinating about that is Samhain is one of those publishers. So could we, let's talk about that piece of romance history because it was so fleeting, it feels like. And it was. And it was so important at the same time because there was this moment, this crest of a moment where ebooks had just hit, people had just started accepting, you know, e readers as, as into their lives. There were so many of these small presses that were, um, you know, taking on authors who larger publishers were saying nobody buys that, that there's no market for it. Sam Hain was one. Alora's Cave was doing it in erotica. There were a number of other queer presses. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit. We've never had anybody on who published with Sam Hain. So I wonder if you could talk a little about that world, who it was there, what it what was what was going on in the Samhain world? And then, you know, that, that didn't last for very long. It didn't last for very long. It was very, very unstable. You look at that, they've all imploded, haven't they? All of them. Um, you had to talk here, that's gone. Except for Radcliffe's, but it's different because Bold Strokes is like Radcliffe running the show, right? Yeah, no, Bold, well, Bold, Bold Strokes, I think there's a couple of ones where it's basically people who publish themselves and possibly their friends, and they're very, very specific. But also... Lesbian romance kind of is differently siloed, mm. so, you know. But for the the sort of more general thing that was going on that I was part of, um, so you, you, had, you had talk here that was, I mean, they were doing some really weird things with covers that were very difficult, and I think it ended poorly. And then Sam Hain, who were really sort of, they did, they did um, a lot of exciting stuff, and they really put a lot of heart into it, ended poorly. And then you've got, um, you know, Dream Spinner, who are still going, but oh, um, but don't pay their authors. But don't pay their authors, and I, you know, have very strong views on my that. constant asterisk about Dream Spinner. <laughs> they don't pay their authors. Don't publish with them. <laughs> they do not publish with them because they still owe large amounts of bat royalties they should never have touched. And then you have Riptide, who imploded in such a spectacular way that there was a whole page article about it in the Guardian, which is a UK newspaper about the small. Um, American press going under because of the spectacular nature of their employment. Well, it was so horrifying that it was. Well, it was horrifying, and you know, I, I was one of the people who I had a book coming out with them, and I yanked uh, literally that time. I know, you know, it was one of those ones where uh, it was so close to publishing, and you know, I didn't want to publish with them, but it was like a couple of days before, and there was an audio book, so I basically wrote to them and said. You know, I'm I'm very dubious about this, and they literally reversed my rights without me asking because I think they were just automatically they were just doing it. Yeah, they're just doing but it for everybody listening. We'll put a link in show notes to the Riptide story, but essentially, sort of very broad strokes. There was a an there were allegations of and you know screenshots of a, an editor harassing sexually harassing authors. Yeah, and there was there was a bunch more to it. There was another scandal. When anyway, the whole the whole. Um, Without delving any further into that, because to be honest, we'll never get no, back out. No, and I don't. It's not what today is about. So. Perfect, but pulling my hair out. But but that was actually quite a large part of it. It was a very um, labile time. It was um, 
you, you know, there was an, a great deal of hope, a great deal of people who were um, in some ways throwing everything at the wall to see it, what would stick because nobody knew, because nobody had been doing it before. Right. It hadn't, it literally hadn't yeah, existed. Suddenly, yeah. yeah, queer presses had been, you know, these very tiny outfits probably operating out of New York and, you know, doing a, a paperback for like $20 or something because of the cost. And suddenly you can whack it out there and get it on ebook. And, you know, the numbers were pretty startling because so many people were around the whole world who had been unable to get these books were able to get these books um but of course what happened and which happened with much of romance is you know the realization that you could then self-publish on amazon and get 70 percent instead of 25 percent and people started questioning what a lot of those presses you know you sell it to talk air and they put an absolutely shocking generic cover on it and didn't give you any editorial support or, you know, you um, get your mates to knock up a cover and put it on Amazon. And, you know, it wasn't really a, wasn't really a debate. So I think that's, that, that very heavily lies behind why so many of them didn't survive. I just was doing a library thing, and I was talking about, like, a lot of people who self-publish will, like, kind of trade services with each other as a way to, like, get books to market, right? Like, as you said, like, I have a friend who can do a cover, and I can do a copy edit, and, right? I mean, it feels like, even though it's, there, it feels like people are like recreating the work of the publisher, like in smaller groups, in order to put out good products. That does exist. I definitely know of people who do it, and there's a lot of sort of course trading with newsletters and you know, mutual support and so on and so forth, which I think, um, yeah, can be great. I, I'm always a bit dubious about putting the words community and authors in the same sentence <laughs> because words cats in a sack can also. <laughs> 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 but you know um there are clearly people who do do work together to help one another and, you know, and recommend and you know, I there's a, a lots of people who will um just email me or dm me and sort of say can you help with this can you tell me somebody who might yeah who did you use for um and i think that's you know that, that is important um well for any marginalized community but especially when you're you know you're trying to to build it this week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Lumi Labs, creators of microdose gummies. So you've all heard us talking about microdosing and the concept of microdosing, which is commonly associated with psychedelics, wellness, performance enhancement, and creativity. And uh, we've been talking about microdose gummies for a while on the podcast and we've talked a lot about how we use them ourselves. Um, Jen uses them for sleep. I have used them in the last few months as sort of a way to just take the edge off and like come down off of a rough time or a stressful time over the holidays. Um, people use them for creative boosts. Uh, we've heard about people who listen using them for pain and anxiety. It's a great product that's going to fit into your lifestyle. Right. So I really love, I was like, the whole idea of like just chilling out in this really stressful time of year has been one way lately that I have found them helping me. Yeah. So if you search around the internet, make have a Google search on microdosing, you'll learn more um, and you'll learn about all the ways that people are using them out there in the world. Uh, our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies, which deliver the perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And you can find Microdose uh, available nationwide. It'll be shipped directly to your doors at microdose.com. You can use the code FADEDMATES for 30% off your first order and free shipping. 
Thanks, as always, to Lumi Labs and Microdose for sponsoring the episode. Did you have a community coming up? Cats in your I'm sack? Not, I'm, not, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not a very good community person. Uh, I'm tend to be fairly, uh, I, there's a reason I work on my own in the shade. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I've had, um, yeah. Or I, editors or anybody who you felt was, like, helping you to sort of shape the road. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there's um, really, it was also like, um, you know, I've talked a lot with Alexis Hall, obviously queer, romance, British. Um, you know, that's been really, really interesting. Jordan Hawke, who I you know, co-wrote a book with, and E. Osterman as well. And and that's actually been really important, I think. Probably um, I've talked to Brits because it is actually a bit separate. Yeah, romance is so American-dominated that it's actually, you know, nice. So, you know, Talia Hibbert, for example, um, you know, who was great, um, and, and Alexis. And um, I've also got, you know, that Mae Peterson, who is an author of uh, mostly trans, also non-binary romance, including fantasy romance, but who's also a really good editor and a book doctor. And she's, like, book doctored three books for me and, you know, saved them effectively. So, you know, having someone like that at your back is absolutely invaluable. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, establishing relationships just with people who will actually give your book a read and tell you to, you know, calm down and take a deep breath if you're being given hassle is is very important to do. <laughs> do you think the perception of romance has changed over your career? I mean, coming up from like Mills and Boone to where we are now, like kind of how has it changed in like any, do you have a crystal ball? Like where are we going? The problem is, the problem is, you know, how do people see romance and all that is, you know, it's such a massive genre that it's really hard. Like, you know, like, I see people say things about romance and I'm thinking, yeah, but you're looking at like Kindle Unlimited that's full of fond books and, you know, toxic, I don't know what, my God, the hell people are doing in there. Um, And then you're looking at the kind of books which are, a lot of the kind of books which are getting on the shelves at the moment, which there's much more diversity and there's a much stronger sense of, um, yeah, sex positivity and body positivity and all these great things. And then, you know, you've also got this huge strand of, um, there's always a Fifty Shades or a Colleen Hoover, isn't there? Right. And, yes. And, you know, and, and, you know the, how can we say what do people think of romance when you're simultaneously talking about Tanya Hibbert and Colleen Hoover and whatever godforsaken thing is at the top of the Kindle Unlimited chart? Um, you know, I have different perceptions of those things. <laughs> Um, that said, um, so the thing that actually is really striking me at the moment, so you're getting a lot more romance of the kind that I like and read is hitting the bookshelves, you know, Boyfriend Material and Red, White and Blue and, you know, Talia again and, um, yeah, people like Jackie Lau who's, you know, set out to write romance with Chinese leads because she couldn't get them published and she just sort of doggedly said, right, I'm going to self-publish these because no publisher will take them. And now she's got it, you know, now she's being traditionally published because, you know, she just dug in and did it. So you're getting all those on the shelves. But uh, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but I went into Waterstones, the only big book chain we've got left, and there's a table covered in romance novels and the label on it says New Adults. It doesn't say romance anywhere. The word romance yeah. doesn't come up. No, New they adults. don't like that word. No. Yeah. No, well, no. you know, TikTok. what the hell? 
Yeah, well, I mean, do not give me, those are not new adult books. That's complete rubbish. But they don't, you know, and this is why the cartoon covers bothers me, not because I don't like them aesthetically, but because it seems to me part of the big branding effort to go, this isn't romance. You know, uh, it, it looks like chick lit or it looks like lipstick. I mean, there's one, there's a book that's come out recently whose name, I probably shouldn't say, but it's okay because I can't remember it. Um, <laughs> but it's it's got... The blurb is one of those, looks like it belongs on Kindle Unlimited. It's one of those ones of, he looks at me with his dark eyes and I see myself <laughs> falling into the prison of his yada, yada, yada. <laughs> like black verse, you know, there's black verse. So, and yeah, there's oh, no geez. names. And it's so <laughs> frustrating when you're trying to get information. I'm yeah, with, oh, no, yeah. There's no names. And, it, and it's just all this sort of vague, she is my doom, she is my destiny, yeah. <laughs> you know, et cetera. So the, 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 the blurb is all that. But the cover really is this absolutely beautiful thing that looks like it belongs on like a book about a, a Hungarian countess in the 1940s who's like, <laughs> uh, whose family is slowly decaying during sure. the war, you know. She's trying litmic. to keep that castle together. It's hard well, work. It's the most lit-lit cover you've ever seen. And the blurb is the most horrible KU thing you've ever seen. And the... Um, the book? I have no idea what the book is. Yeah, you know, I great. completely don't know what the book is. there? Absolutely clashing. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's the strategy. Well, if the strategy is to confuse anyone who knows anything about romance, then they have absolutely nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's. It, I mean, I saw a book the other day that is absolutely not romance, just like contemporary fiction. And it had a very kind of generically vector art cover. And I just thought... I. This is not a romance-only problem now, right? This is a publishing yeah. problem. Like it is it's a massive just all one problem. big bin to them, I guess. It's a book. The last two romantic comedies I have bought, both of which had cartoon covers and or you know, drawn covers, and were they both funny? of which said rom-com on the blurb. Neither of them has been a romance, and actually, neither of them was a comedy. Yeah, and they yeah, one of them was all about like a to- uh, the heroine was being stalked by her toxic abusive ex. That's not a comedy. Why is that funny? What's no. going on here? Um, and and there's no romance. It's the, yeah, the other one. It's a very good book, but it's literally a book about this woman having this really difficult relationship with her family and her faith and whatever. And she gets engaged to this other guy. And at the end, she thinks she might start getting, dating the one that the other guy <laughs> who's like really nice. Well, you know, I think I might start dating him in a couple of months. It's not a happy ending. You can't call that a romantic comedy, but they are. Yeah. Uh, so where do I think romance is going? I, you know, if the publishers are in charge, I doubt it. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I feel that way, right? Like they're like, well, it would be great if this would just go away. Can we just make money off of you without giving you what you want? That's what we would like. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's kind of baffling to me uh, because you know my experience as an editor was very much simply that publishers will do basically anything for money and. Um, yeah. I don't understand why it's an asterisk exception romance. You know, I mean, especially the Mills have been, yeah, they were such a good publisher to work for in a lot of ways, and they were completely led into what they were doing. They were like, they we had um, an internet forum that where um, readers were encouraged to come on and talk to editors. We were literally so encouraged fun. at work to uh, sit there and chat with uh, <laughs> readers on the forums. That was a part of my job. I got paid for that. It's amazing. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they were groundbreaking and things like that. Well, it is interesting that you bring that up because it feels like uh, those publisher, again, when you, so you were editing for Mills and Moon in the 90s? No. Yeah, it got to be 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So at that time, 
there were there so f- there were so few places for readers to find yeah right authors and and publishers and romance has always felt to me like the 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 community of romance readers is so active and so eager to they romance readers are so eager to find each other because i think of the perception from the outside world that we're all like cat ladies or sex crazed like it's one or the other, right? And there's both and. Listen, stop judging me. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the idea being that, you know, because the outside world has this really negative perception of us as readers, when we find each other, we are so grateful to find each other. And the interaction, I think, I mean, speaking to my friends and, and people, colleagues who write not, write outside of romance, their relationship with readers is incredibly different than my relationship with readers. Um, and I think that is something that's very special to romance. Um, and so I'm sort of curious about how that world has shifted in your perception. Because I remember before I was writing, Avon was doing similar things. Like there were boards, you know, Re- Tessa Dare and Cordy Milan and others came up through the Avon boards as... Um, you know, they were writing Bridgerton fanfic, essentially, on the Avon boards. Yeah. And then Avon, you know, had a fan-lit contest where Julia Quinn judged the finals. Yeah. I mean, that kind of thing was amazing. It was wonderful. I I basically, you know, I, I would be talking to people. I remember giving the call to somebody who was a regular on the Nelson Boone boards and, yeah, when we announced it was wonderful because I got to do it in person. It was one of the best days of my life. So I told fun. her in person. I was like, she burst into tears. We were at a conference. She burst into tears and she cried so hard that people were, like, rushing up thinking she'd had, like, news of her family's death. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, uh, and yes, then we announced I love it, it when they cry. Oh, it's great when they cry. <laughs> and then, then we announced it on the Harlequin boards and they just exploded, yeah. you know, the sheer joy. But it was also, you know, yeah, and, uh, and I had done it because it was a great book and she was a great writer and I loved doing it. But, yeah, somebody described it as the best piece of PR Mills and Boone ever had. And it kind of was, because all of yeah. those people literally saw in real time that one of them, it could happen to you. Yeah. Because it did happen to her, right. you know. Exactly. And it was, it was joyous, that. It was absolutely joyous. And now I feel like the readership is finding us in so many different ways, right? Like, there, yeah. there's a constant sense of them being able to, to touch us on Twitter, on Goodreads, on, you know, in in all these different places. And I wonder if that's changed the way you think about writing. I often wonder that about myself. Like, do I write differently because I'm interacting so much with readers? And this is a different question from the one that's going around on Twitter right now, which is, are reviews what's the purpose of reviews? I don't want to talk about that. No, no. But I'm sort of I think a lot about I do think a lot about readers when I write. Well, you can't you can't not. But I think a lot of writers don't at all. Jen and I have talked to, you know, however many. And there are yeah. so many who are like, I don't think about them at all. I write for myself. And that I'm not, I want to say for everyone out there, that's not me being, I'm not judging that. Like that's a No, it's it's that's it's, a it's, way. It's, it's it's an approach. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get it because I know people who just, you know, they don't want anything to do with social Head media. Down. It's a time suck. Yep. And I get people who say, you know, I couldn't write, you know, I don't write my, I don't write my messy. I don't have, 
it's one of the reasons I'm so firm on that reviews serve for readers. Uh, I'm not sitting here finding out what um, Blob 27 no. wants to oh say about it. I don't care. Right. Your if mental health, Blob 27, I don't know how people survive that. Yeah. But yeah. No, uh, I, I have absolutely, you know, I, I, it's not a committee. Uh-huh. Okay, I, it's, it's, a, it's a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> Sometimes not even benevolent. No, it's a benevolent <laughs> dictatorship, let's be real. Um, <laughs> but, um, and yet... I have learned so much from readers' comments and really insightful things, you know, which are not for me, but they are things that I have seen because they scroll past on my timeline. And when you see someone who is, like, really putting the work in to say, okay, here's this historical romance and this is why, you know, this was a misstep and this hit really badly and this hurt really badly... And you think, yeah, that is a misstep, and it's potentially a misstep I could very easily have made. And I'm really glad I didn't make it, and I don't want to make it. And I don't, and you know, the world is full of missteps I could make. I feel like it's on the one hand you could paralyze yourself, and on the other hand, you know, I don't. I would rather not hurt somebody than than hurt them. You know, I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to say something stupid and crass if I can avoid it. I often say stupid, crass things, but I'd rather not. Um, so I think, I guess it's a fine line, isn't it? I think strictly from a reader point of view, one of the ways I think romance has changed is that, I mean, like I grew up in a time of like, I hid my romance novels, right? I think a lot of us did, or I didn't have a community of romance readers because I grew up in a time where there was like, how is I going to find those people? Right. And so I do think one of the ways like the that romance has changed is that romance readers are no longer buying into the narrative of this is something we should be ashamed of. And I often wonder if that doesn't like trickle out in ways that say, as you've said, like, right, like this, this hurt me and I don't come to romance to be hurt. No, like there is an avenue for that to be heard, not like in a personal way, like this book isn't good, but in a. Right. And I I do think that maybe that's what Sarah's talking about. Like writ large, like you're more in touch with readers in a way like we didn't have that. I mean, if you've been around long enough, you knew that this was like a secret shame. You sculpted down like the like library aisle or the, the bookstore aisle and got your books or you got them sent to your house. There's a reason there's not a like send the thrillers to your house package. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody needs that, right? And yeah. I, I just think a lot about... <laughs> the reader is more... We're more aware of the reader because readers are more aware of ourselves. I yeah. don't know. I think that's true. But, but I also think people in general have just developed a much stronger idea that they can talk to creators. Yes. They'll be talked back. I mean, you just look at, you know... That 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 sort of powerful genre of memes where you've got some absolute idiot explaining to the creator of a TV show what the TV show is about, <laughs> right? But I mean, so I think I think you know the the Twitter has um, almost you know given people this wild idea <laughs> possibility that you know you can talk to your favourite author and they might interact with you and you say anything to them. and yeah, quite often people are at me. And I will reply, and then I'll go, I didn't think you'd reply, but, like, but you literally talk to me. <laughs> I'm not rude. I'm British. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one day you might, like, talk to that person and have a podcast with them. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this is, it is genuine. So, you know, and I, this is this is not a binding guarantee that I will reply if someone asks me on Twitter. And talk to <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but um, I, I, I think the possibility of being sucked into the world's 
of that is immensely strong. And especially if you you don't have a fairly strong sense of self and a fairly, you need a tough fight for that kind of thing. I think if you're the kind of, you know, person who's always looking for feedback and who's devastated by a three-star review or whatever, I, my only recommendation would be to stay the hell off social media altogether because it'll kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, that is unfortunately just the way it is. Do you, are there books of yours that are like fan favorites? Like, are there books that you hear about from your readers more than others? I and mean, we obviously have our favorites here at Fade of yes. but Yeah, there are. I mean, um, you know, the Magpie trilogy, which is my first one, so obviously they've been out the longest, but they also seem to have a place in my reader's hearts that nothing will match. <laughs> it's always <laughs> I mean, those first ones. And you're yeah, like, I've well, written so I'm, many others. <laughs> I've got so many. Yeah, I've, I've got more translations of those than anything else. I've put it oh, in their eight languages, which is nice. And um, you know, tattoos. When people get tattoos, it's usually magpie lord tattoos. Oh, the best tattoos are really terrifying. So nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. It's just see you know, all the more reason for you to be worried about Twitter because then you're afraid. Oh God, I'm going to say something someday, and then these people have tattoos of our books. My only tattoo is of a James Joyce quote, and he's not alive to really appreciate that about me. So, <laughs> yeah, but you know, also he's not going to get cancelled. Then you'll feel dreadful. You have to strike it out and go cancelled. That yes. wrong. <laughs> be like, God damn it. Um, no, I, I, th- I think it's incredible. The you know, I, I see that, and it's I, I still just sit there in like you're gobsmacked awe that this thing could possibly be happening. Amazing, Someone could react like that. But yeah, so you no know, people. Um, I think I think those are the ones that that strike. Although, well, in fairness, there's three books in the trilogy, and then there's two books in the extended world. So, also, I think people have a real opportunity to take a deep dive and roll around mm-hmm. in the world, which is right. nice. So, to the same extent, or a similar question, but from the other from the other side, is there a book that you've written that you feel is is the one? This is the one that you know. Fifty years from now, this is the KJ Charles book. I wish everyone. When we talk about you, the way people talk about Georgette Hare, we're yeah. like, this was the good one. Oh, gosh. That's such a hard one, isn't it? Um, most of them have different things that I'm proud of. I mean, look, if you're asking me sort of which book am I proudest of, it's probably book three of my Will Darling series solely because there was literally no way I was able to write that book. Uh, because I wrote, I published book one just at the start of the pandemic, and I had just finished writing book two when I was publishing one because it was, you know, it's self-pub and you can do that. And book three, I'm trying to write it in the pandemic, plus it's a book three of the same couple trilogy, and I put all that work in, and I couldn't do the plot at all. It was really plotty, and there was a note, and I couldn't decide on the, I mean, you know what it was like writing in the pandemic. You're flipping act. Um but, you know, it, it had a murder mystery, and I wrote the beginning with the same character. First he was the victim, and then he was the murderer, and then he was the key witness. And, you know, I had to write this over and over again, and I just couldn't write this bloody book. And in the Plot end, is t- the worst. It took me 10 months. You know, I can not normally write a book in four months. It took me 10 months to write this. I had to stop and write a different book in the middle just to take my mind off things. <laughs> uh, so the fact that I finished it, and the fact that lots of people, you know, some people sort of, it's been reviewed as, you know, her best book kind of thing. I think, uh, yeah, I, I will eternally be proud I did that. Um, I'm also actually incredibly proud of The Secret Lives of Country Gentlemen, which is the one that is coming out in March with Sourcebooks, because that it is, is tremendous, everyone. 
I was very lucky to be able to read it early. Well, I'm I'm proud of it as a book, but I'm also immensely proud because um, you know I, I I've published with Sam Hain, and then um, I got I had six books with uh, Love Swept, which were only published in E, which is an experience so phenomenally rancid that in 2017 I basically switched to self-publishing and decided I didn't want anything to do with publishers ever again as long as I lived. And um, while you know started looking to change that a few years later but so secret lives of country gentlemen is now my first book that is coming out coming out primarily in print source books this obviously coming out in e but source books is print led you know it's going to be on bookshelves it's being promoted it's had reviews in all the big journals which is not something you get when you're self-published as a rule right um and it is actually out there going look there is queer historical is on the shelves to buy being promoted by a publisher uh-huh. And, you know, being part of, you know, a tiny part, but a part of that wave of um, actually getting some representation out there. So I'm just hugely proud of that. Everyone, you can pre-order it now. So one last question that we really like, um, because we feel like like the history of romance is so unwritten. So, and we sort of mentioned this earlier, but... um, when you think about, like, the people that you've worked with that maybe are not, like, the unsung heroes of romance, right? Are there people you worked with at Mills and Boone or people that you've worked with even as you self-published or at Samhain? Like, the na- like we like to put the names in show notes just so that, like, they show up in Google searches. And, you know, <laughs> these are people that we can sort of say, like, hey, the- this- these people were an important part of making romance happen. Oh, it's hard, isn't it, to sort of define. Um, yeah. It's like giving and, an Oscar speech. Just get in the mood. <laughs> I mean, okay, so some of the some of the authors I would think of, and I've you know, named some of them before, but yeah, the, the people who have just dug in and written the books about, you know, written the books that publishers weren't taking. So again, Jordan L. Hawke and E. Obstermann, who are writing <laughs> trans romance, and... Jackie Lau and Talia Hibbert, who are writing, you know, diverse romance and, you know, do you know, have driven through and become, um, you know, really successful. And then you've got, like, the authors of trans romance who are getting published now because that's happening in Karina. So you've got, like, Penny Ames and Chris Ricker and May Peterson and who are, you know, just, you know, Leading the charge and pushing forwards, and you know, I want I want them to explode. Not literally, I want them, but really <laughs> And um, and actually, also, you know, the people because I mean, Mills have been for a long time. Harlequin, you know, certainly when I came into romance, yeah, very white. Basically, it was pretty much very, very heavily white um, when I was there as an editor. Um, and then you've got people like Therese Bahari and Jadisola James, Jeannie Lynn was with them, um, you know, people who were actually getting in there and changing things and, you know, being very visibly, you know, writing books about sort of, it's a print, the print is an actual Nigerian prints, not the kind you sends emails, but your actual right. Nigerian <laughs> print. And, you know, uh, Therese Bahari writes, uh, she's black South African and she writes, you know, books. And yeah, she's also moving to traditional um, publishing out of category. But all those people, they fought so hard to be seen. And, you know, I, I want them all to be huge successes because they're also all wonderful writers. So that matters. 
And then in terms of editors, the one who actually really leaps to mind, I wish I knew what she was doing there, was Anne Scott, who was my editor at Sunhain. And I say this because she gave me the single best piece of editorial advice I have ever received in my life. Um, and one which, you know, I still think about and still becomes relevant every time I write a book because I keep doing the same thing over and over again. But she basically just um, highlighted the passage and said, this reads like you're explaining the plot to yourself. And I've never been so seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, now I can see your face there, Yeah, exactly. But, ow. you know. Uh, ow. Yeah, but, you know, actually. But also, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to write that down. That's a good thing to tell people. Man, that happens in every book. But to have an, all, uh, an editor who will actually just sit there and say that to you, and uh, it's as genuinely <laughs> every manuscript. Like, why is this so period? Yeah, why is this uh, whole passage so slow and boring? Oh, right, I'm doing it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just re I'm recapping for myself because I took a little break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's shockingly easy to do, but you know, when you get that kind of maxim, you will never forget it. And I actually, um, I did a book called The Secret Case Book of Simon Vexmal, which is framed as um, the. The hero is a kind of Watson who writes stories about his lover who he works with <laughs> and is framed as a letter to the editor. And I actually named the editor Henry Scott after Anne Scott because, you know, she she just deserved to be immortalised. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, that that kind of thing, you just can't forget. That's a great piece of advice. That is, that's great advice. We did a deep dive read-along of Van Sinister, so hopefully all of our readers have read a KJ, a KJ Charles book. But if they haven't, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what makes a K.J. Charles book. Because you've oh. written so you've written all over the place in terms of there's magic sometimes, there isn't magic, sometimes there's more sometimes there's more romance, sometimes there's a murder, sometimes there's three books with the same couple. So I wonder, is there something that when you think about yourself and the way you write that you always get from K.J. Charles? I have basically two taglines or taglines <laughs> which have been bestowed on me. And one of them is romance with body counts, um, <laughs> which is completely fair. Somebody did an infographic of deaths in my books and it's just horrifying. <laughs> like, I'm going to find this that. This one's sort of 17. This one, you know, and then like the different animals that people have been killed by and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, romance with body count, high murder levels, definitely. And the other one is hair but gayer, which just uh, sums That's up everything I... Is- Gayer. Hey, but gayer. It sums up everything I aspire to. Oh my mind. gosh. Put it on your tombstone. <laughs> oh, totally. Listen, so, tattoo worthy. I'll say that, it. Van Sinister <laughs> is absolutely hey, but gayer. And the Will Darling Adventures is romance with body counts, kind of thing. Um, so those sort of sum up the kind of things I write, albeit over different time periods. But if I had to identify one element that was most present, it's, it is probably the theme of a lonely person finding an alliance, friendships, loyalty, yeah. not just from their loved one, but in a larger group. That's the right answer. And, <laughs> and I, I, I tossed it up because, um, you know, when I looked at your thing before, and uh, as far as I can tell, out of approximately 27 books so far, 23 have this as a theme. So that's quite a lot. Um, but it, it, but it, it's so important because you know you've got especially um a i'm writing historicals about a time where there was no social safety net whatsoever 
And, you know, if you didn't have a supportive family or a supportive community, you know, you were in so much trouble. And B, uh, you know, I'm writing about queer people who are, you know, take that, what I just said, and multiply it by a factor of about 50. Um, And it seems to me that a happy ending very often requires, you know, it takes a village, fundamentally. So uh, I, I, I seem to have a drive to give people their best friends and the new best friends and their, their group and the, the place where they feel at home. And it's not just with one person. It's It's got to be bigger than that. So I think that would be me. We'll think about how to make that into something catchy, like hair, but gayer. <laughs> not sure I'm up to the task, but that, you know, then you'd have like three romance with a body count, hair, but gayer, and like, I'll keep working on it. But I, I actually, um, one of the, I did, um, uh, series called Society of Gentlemen set in um it's a very realistic type regency world <laughs> in that it's um politics like cats in the sack and people like being informed on and sent to prison for their political review views and revolution and so on. And um one of the heroes is a, a seditionist and one of the things he repeats throughout the book is I don't inform. You know, it's it is it, his catchphrase. He does not inform. It doesn't matter what you do to him, he's gonna be absolutely loyal to his friends. So that's a seditious affair, right? That's a seditious that's affair, yeah. My favorite of that series. Yeah, I I enjoyed writing that so Silas much. And Dominic in there. Perfect and always. <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed writing that one because it's got, I mean, it's got a lot of the things that I write about a lot, like, yeah, class difference, which is absolutely huge there, and money difference, but also, you know, what to do when you've got genuinely opposing points of view. Because mm-hmm. I really feel that most of the time, a conflict isn't there's one person who's right and one person who's wrong. It's those people who came at it from a completely different point of view and have to reconcile those points of view. And, yeah, one of them going, I'm sorry, I was totally wrong, isn't, you know, it's easier. Not kind of how that but works. But it's not how it works. Yeah, so um, so I'm very proud of that one. We are pro-conflict here at Faded Maid, so <laughs> on, on the record. KJ, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. And talking about your life and romance and your thoughts. We, I'm, I love every time you write a long-form piece about what's wrong with writing and romance. <laughs> Well, and I will say, I mean, we didn't mention him, but KJ's blog is, uh, if you want to write romance and you are not reading it, mm-hmm. you are doing it wrong. And as an editor, if you are an editor and not giving people, like, I'm often like, read this, read this, because it's so great. I mean, that's the thing. I feel like your your editor's eye, you can see in the things that you write yourself, but also in the way that you talk about books you've read. I just, it's we're lucky to have you. Well, I'm. I really scratch my itch because I miss being an editor. I loved being an editor, and if they would only pay me enough, I would still be an editor. But um, you know, it's uh, it, the way I scratch my itch to like talk authoritatively about books these days is in large part by blogging. And plus, I also find that if I blog on a subject that I'm sort of noodling about in my own writing, I often find my granddad used to say, "Say, how do I know what I think till I hear what I say? And I feel that might be what I'm doing. That's perfect. No, we do that too. I feel like whenever I'm in deep in a book, I'm like, Jen, can we do an interstitial about this thing that I'm working on? So yeah, that exactly. <laughs> I can read a bunch of books and then noodle it so yeah and the b you you talk about it but you're not talking about yourself you're just talking about the problem abstractly and lo and behold it turns out that yeah you know, right that's what i solution did. appears <laughs> that's what i think <laughs> thank god i knew it was something <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for being with us. What an amazing conversation. And um, we wish you the best of luck with The Secret Lives of Country Gentlemen, which is, as I said, tremendous. Thank you. Um, And you should all go read it immediately. I had a, a whole lot of joy reading it. March 7th. March 7th. Thanks, KJ. Well, thank you very much for having me. That was lovely. What a delight. Oh, she's the greatest. She's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. I've had I so during the pandemic, um Joanna Shoup has a Facebook group if you love historical romance. The League of Extraordinary Historical Romance Writers. And readers can be in that space too, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a really fun group. And during the pandemic, I hosted a bunch of like kind of Zoom chats, right? Like remember how desperate we were to just like, you know, Gosh. talk about things and KJ was on once and I was like, oh wow, this is great. And so I one of the things, can we talk about her like working at Mills and Boone stories? So awesome. I know. And so one of the things that I, I just realized before we started recording the, you know, the intro and the outro for this episode is we didn't say this, but I'm 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 sure most of you know that Mills and Boone is Harlequin. Um right. it's just called Mills and Boone in the UK, Australia, Canada. Although I think now in Canada it's Harlequin. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But Mills and Boone and Harlequin are crossover publishers. So presents that are published by Mills and Boone can be published by Harlequin, etc. I was really fat. I wish I wish I'd thought to push her more on talking more about medicals. Because yeah. I would really like to know why medicals don't aren't an American thing. Don't yeah. really sell over here. Because I love a doctor, as you know. I really honestly do feel like it maybe I joked about ER, but I do think that maybe it's a different like I think maybe American TV has trained us to expect a different kind of medical thing happening. See, you know what I immediately thought of? Was like does it have something to do with insurance. Well, sure. I mean, because yeah, nothing medical you know. issues are so much more stressful for Americans than they are for people all in all the rest of the world. Right. Because we have to worry about cost. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Um, but I don't know, that that just went to a bleak place. Anyway, <laughs> um I get universal health care, everybody. Vote vote for politicians who want to give you health care. A whole new romance world will open up to us. Oh, imagine. Imagine if that happened, if we got universal health care and an entire new world of contemporary romance. What a world. Listen, that's what they should do. They should put out commercials like that in election season. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing that I also, when I think of, if look, I love K.J. Charles's books. Obviously, we've talked about Band Sinisters, my favorite, but... There are writers who have, like, different strengths, right? And one of the things about K.J. Charles's books is, like, they are so, they are impeccably plotted, and the pacing is perfect, and all of the, like, emotional beats, like, right? Like, K.J. Charles, as we like to say, like, really knows the job. And so it was really fascinating to hear her talk about, like, learning, the, you know, like, the neural pathways, like, literally being retrained, right? Yeah, spending years writing, uh, spending years editing yeah. category has to hone that skill better than really anything else, I would think. Absolutely. There's just no, I mean, I talked about this when we did the Band Sinister episode, but there's just no, there's nothing extra in those books. Every yeah. word is is placed intentionally. Every plot point is intentional. I was really fascinated. I was 
truly incredibly fascinated by her talking about hair and yes. how hair has has really influenced her work. And and that, of course, is because when we think about hair now, when we look back on it, hair is sort of a, a problematic antecedent, right? Yeah. And for all of us. And I think what was really interesting to me when she talks about hair is how much she acknowledged queer coding in hair. Yes. Which is not a thing I have ever thought about. I mean, obviously, when we talk about, you know, cross-dressing heroines and, you know, a lot of those, those things that were so essential to romance and continue to be really constant in um, historicals, it's never really given, I've never thought about yeah. Them come. I've always I've thought about them coming from hair, but I've never thought about them coming from hair and being possibly intentionally queer coded in hair. Mm-hmm. And it made me think, gosh, I I wish I wish KJ would write the introductions to a bunch of these hairs. So right. if you're a publisher out there, now you know who to talk planning to, to re republish hairs. Yeah, hit up KJ to write some of them. The introductions. I think that this is something, and again, like we are two straight ladies talking about this, so you know, I don't want to, yeah, of course, uh, you know, misstep. But I have thought a lot about um, what she was talking about. Uh, you know, these books have existed for a long time, but in small press runs, and you know, with Vincent Averga, like in in specific bookstores, right? Like knowing it, you know, so like how to get those books into your life became was charged right and so i think a lot about how how angry i am right that like people are realizing oh this is dangerous and you know these movements to remove queer coded not queer coded books queer books right it doesn't have to be coded we don't have anymore. to queer code anymore right although i think we are going to start seeing it i just can't get over i don't know i i'm I'm so upset about us going backwards, and I'm so upset about the kids who had to look for queer coding because queerness explicitly didn't exist, and mm-hmm. it's just so wrong to be taking that back from from young readers, from any readers. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to pause in our KJ discussion to just say to everyone, if you have not listened to our book banning episode, and I know, like, it... it you know, there were lots of reasons why people maybe skipped that episode, but it is so important um, to hear the voices of those people who are being impacted directly by book banning. Um, and so we have it. We'll put links and show notes to it. It is. It sits now on the main page of fatedmates.net so that everybody can access it. Um, but I encourage you to go listen to that episode so that you can, you know, get more informed about what is actually happening uh, yeah. in the world right now, in the United States especially. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I really thought I was I was interested in the way that, in like her, the way she talks about historicals. You know, we talked about this too, that there are, there are kind of two schools of historicals. Um, you know, the historicals that are maybe more historical fantasy without magic, as she said. Right. And then um, what she writes, which is more historical romance. Purely. Um, and I think that she threaded a really interesting needle there. And I I do think, like, there are really interesting things happening on both sides of that line. Right. And I, I think I love historical. God, I love historical so much. And I feel like there's such refuge for me. And uh-huh. it sounds like for KJ, too, in 
you know, thinking about who we are now through the lens of who we were then. It's such a powerful yeah. way to sort of like think about the differences. And also, I what I really loved is I think one of the things you and I is like romance is fun. Hey, like romance is fun. It should be fun. It should yeah. be fun. And it, it doesn't always have to be fun. That's not the only mood that romance, you know, kind of can be in. But I really loved because that's one of the things I think about KJ's books is like I have always you are in for a good time. Yeah, they, those they books. rollick. Yes, roll exactly. And I think that that's part of the it's nice to hear a, a author who is so committed to romance being fun talk about what that means and what that looks like uh-huh. and how you get there. And then to hear that, that that readers respond to it is so powerful, right? I think she wasn't giving herself enough credit when she talked about how readers yeah. interact with her texts because I think reading KJ's remarkable books with her communities of you know, supportive communities of characters and the way love is just so beautifully represented in all of these books. I mean, she just does it so, so well. She is one of the best of us, undeniably. And I think for readers, there is such power in that. And I imagine, you know, back in the day when Samhain was producing you know, some of the only ebooks that you could find that were queer romance, KJ must have been oh incredibly transformational for a lot of, of readers. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot about it because one of the things I I feel is sometimes romance authors develop secondary characters only as like bait for later books, right? And that yeah. is not, and look, God, trust me, I love it, but that is not what KJ Charles is doing, right? Uh-uh. It And and I, I think it's really important in terms of, like, from a writing standpoint to really, like, state that, right? Like, every single character in her books is there to be themselves, not there to just be, like, you know, I'm I'm here to support the other characters, or I'm here to be background, or I'm here for a future book. You know, I'm just, like... And I really think that that's, like, a hallmark of her style to me is how well-developed ev- it all is, right? Like, no one's there just for a reason. And I think it's... If you're interested as a writer yourself about how to do good secondary character work, you should be reading K.J. Charles. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, you should be reading K.J. Charles for a lot of reasons. I mean, her her incredible plotting. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, you know, this sounds like you're explaining the plot to yourself. Is like, oh, yes, I, I, I felt <laughs> harmed by that. But the, the truth is, is that her plotting is so clean. And it, I mean, I don't know if it happens on the first draft or if it happens later, but the... The way her plots come together is so tidy. And we talked about this. We're sort of rehashing the the deep dive that we did. But um, hearing her talk about process in that way was really valuable. And I think also, um, you know, one of the things that she seemed to be able to do, she seems to have been able to do with her career, is really write 
all around. Like she, you really get the sense from her that, you know, as difficult as it has been in terms of the, it sounds like her publishing journey has, has been, you know, not great all the time. Um, And certainly like losing your publisher, your publisher closing, having a terrible relationship with your publishers, like can really impact what you end up writing. Um, It sounds like for her, it has also been really, it has allowed her to really explore. I, is this the first, like, predominantly self-published author we've had on? Well, we had E.E. E. E. on. Oh, and E.E. E. Ottoman. And, I mean, that's a, probably not a mistake, right? Because, and I, and Radcliffe. I mean, if you think about our queer. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Right. That, you know, with the exception of Vincent. But that's just because it didn't exist, probably, when Vincent. Sure. I mean, it definitely did not exist when Vincent was writing. And I think that this is the thing where we haven't really, we I think we are, like, agnostic. When we talk about books, we're just like, this is a good book. We're not really talking about, like, necessarily the pipeline that brought it to your Kindle or to your door. Uh-huh. I think that when we think about, like, this time in romance, right, like, the ability to self-publish, right, like, the gatekeeping that exists that then people can circumvent is going to bring us books like K.J. Charles, like E.E. E. Ottoman, like Mae Peterson, right? Like, these are books that—and then because of the success of these authors, then we can see how traditional publishing is like, oh, there is a market for this, right? Like, her, that whole discussion of, like, the ways publishing is like, well, if this sold already, we'd already be selling it, <laughs> right? And I think that the only—in that way, self-publishing has been such a gift, not just to the queer romance community, but just to all readers, the right? Like, I can read books now that I didn't know I would love because publishing didn't think I would buy it. And I think that that part, talking about, like, the journey from traditional, like, a kind of traditional independent publisher, Sompain, down to, like, the Riptide Dream Spinner, you know, this has been a, a circuitous route. And I, it's hard to see the, I don't know how to say this, right? Like, the whole story until it's later. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I think that we're going to really look back and, I mean, self-publishing is, you know, it gives and it takes. I mean, you and I come at romance, right, with a very un, a keen sense of we have to know the past in order to understand what's going on, Right. I don't think everybody comes to romance that way, and I don't think everybody has to. But I think for you and me, there is a very a very real sense of the history informing the present, right? Right. Um, and I think people like KJ teach us that. I mean, I just don't believe that his that I don't believe that indie publishing would be where it is if not for those small presses at the beginning. And I think that that is because those small presses, they rode that line between traditional publishing and the structure of traditional publishing and the timeline of traditional publishing and where we are now, right? And so I think that we are, uh, I think we are very lucky to have had authors like KJ come up through those publishers because I don't think that if we'd sort of immediately gone into what we are where we are now with like a giant pool and everybody just throws their stuff into it we would have the kind of discoverability that we do well and I think that this is also you know 
I'm thinking a lot about what she was talking about in terms of her readers, right? The yeah. letters she gets from readers. And I, you couldn't, everyone, you couldn't see her, right? But it was like, this is clearly something that moved her deeply. It moved me to, like, hear her talk about it. And I think that this is the part where, you know, the what has, in many seasons of Faded Mates, I hope what people really understand is, like, reading has made me who I am. Right. If you're a reader, the things you read are changing, are are making you who you are, realizing who you are, right? Like at all kinds of levels. And I just found it really beautiful to think that, you know, self-publishing, like cutting out those gatekeepers has just made room in the world for people who, in romance, in the readership, in the world, like who they are. I just, I don't know. I know this is... I just get on my, like, high horse about romance, how beautiful it is, how, like, much it means to me to know that, I don't know, there's nothing more important about, like, who you are in the world than, like, how you feel about yourself and who you are allowed to love, right? Uh-huh. I don't yeah. know. And I just was, I was very moved by the idea that, like, people who have, you know, we've talked about, like, letters people, authors get from readers who are like, I don't like it when you swear. Like, you know what? Maybe that's worth no, it. No, who cares about those letters in comparison to... Yeah. And I do think we are living in a really fascinating age of romance. And you and I talk about all the different ways that that, that is true, right? And mm-hmm. it's not all good, right? But the thing that is good is how easy it is to find yourself in the books now. I also think... We didn't say this with her, and I I wish we had, because I do believe that she herself may be responsible for a lot of histor- how historical romance is tackling queerness now. Yeah. And I, I mean that as, you know, the difference, the sheer difference between even the 90s and early thousands and the way historicals would use queerness as a weapon— right? Versus now, you do see queer characters in romance, in historical more. Um, You don't see them as protagonists all the time, but you see them as secondary characters more, tertiary characters more. Uh Um, And I think KG is a big, big reason why. I think so many of us have looked to her books as, you know, remarkable texts and also a brilliant model for how to how to try to do this right yeah i mean and i think that's why we wanted her on uh-huh well we're rethinking the way we think about trailblazers right like we're we want very much to be collected the the theory of this this um this batch of episodes the series is you know that we wanted to make sure we had a lot of these voices. And of course, like for us, we want to make sure we get the older voices as quickly as we can for lots of reasons. But that doesn't mean that people... But KJ is a perfect example as of somebody who who has transformed the genre. Yes, right. I, you know, as a reader, I... I you know, it's funny because we've been talking, this is like not related necessarily to exactly to K.J. Charles, but I had this moment this week where I was kind of like, what is it I value as a, like, a romance reader, a a longtime romance reader, right? Like, we Uh see 
so many, you know, new readers. It's really exciting for so many in so many ways. But I have this moment where I just realized, like, what I really value is is people who have a lot of interesting ideas, right? Uh-huh. I just, like, want to read your books if you have interesting ideas. And I, I joked about the book about the taxidermist because if you had told me <laughs> that I would love a book about taxidermy, I don't think I would have believed you, right? And yet, obviously, it's just like a set piece in some ways, but her interests, I, I'm kind of glad I brought up to her talking about, like, how interested she became in it. Uh-huh. I, and I think that that's the thing about KJ, you know, when she said, I have, like, 27 books or whatever it is, like, they're not all the same, They're, right? like, not even close none to of the them. same. And I think that that's one of the reasons I think of her as one of my favorite authors is, obviously, she just does romance so well, but also, she is always doing something interesting herself. I can see her challenging herself, and that is challenging and exciting to me. And what's fascinating is when she listed her, the authors who she thought were you know, important for us to name, almost all of those authors also do different things every time. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, right. Alexis Hall has never written the same book twice, right? So there's a fascinating—she is drawn to other care, other authors who are doing—who are, are exploring. Yeah. And, and that's the thing I, I feel like when I think about trailblazers to me i mean i think when we first started it was kind of like you were the first obviously these are the people who are like the first to do something or you know on the like riding the wave of being the first to do something but i also think as like our thinking has changed it's kind of like who is figured out a way to like write 27 books and keep it fresh right who is figured out the way and that is valuable to me because i think that's how we talk about right as she said like it's a huge big tent right romance is huge so who are the people that are out there pushing on the corners uh-huh i'm interested in in how they just think about their work and what they do all right well another trailblazer in the can as they say um everyone this is faded mates don't forget faded mates live is march 24th in new york city we would love to see you bring your friends Tickets and more information at fatedmates.net slash live. Um, next week, we've got an interstitial for you. Yeah. And say, I would like to just say quick shout out and thank you to Lumi Labs and Kylie Scott for sponsoring this week's episode. We're thrilled to have you all. Uh, I'm Sarah McLean. I'm here with my friend Jen Prokop. You can find us every week at fatedmates.net, on Twitter at fatedmates, on Instagram at fatedmatespod. Uh, We will see you next week.